when it comes to psychosis, not everybody hallucinates. Not everybody is hearing voices, all right? We, we sometimes think they're all doing that. They're not. But talking about sudden excesses, I had a person when I was lead pastor in one of my churches, and he would sort of travel around trying to find love, you know, and he was struggling with psychosis. And one day I, uh, I said to him, uh, he was hanging around waiting for a taxi, and I was sort of late because I had some meeting or something. And I said, this was Sunday after church. And so I said to him, hey, you want to ride home? And he said, oh, yeah, Pastor Jerry, that would be awesome. So when I'm driving with him, he said, do you see the spiders on my window here? He looked at his passenger window. Do you see them crawling down? And I said, uh, whatever his name was, I'm not going to use his real name. I said, uh, let's call him John. It wasn't John. I said, John, if you were on your medication, you wouldn't see your spot, those spiders. He says, I know, you're right, because when I take meds, I don't see those, those spiders. But we had some interesting experiences with John. Uh, for instance, we really, like Eagle Mont, I've been in your church a few times, we really emphasize coffee. And I think uh, coffee is important. I, I tell you, I, I, I couldn't do church without coffee. Jesus and coffee, some people say. So uh, we would have this, co we, had, we built this nice coffee bar where people before the service would get their coffee. And uh, he started coming to church and he brought, he would bring a, a whole box of Coke, right? cans like he brought the whole coke can box and sat down in church and then he'd have one after the other well service was going on and so i i asked him why john why are you bringing coke to church he says well you guys bring coffee and i bring coke what's the difference and so he had a, actually a good argument right but um we may know someone who's dealing with psychosis and i think the role of the church needs to be that we that we pay special attention to the weaker ones, especially uh, as they are working through some of their mental health issues. I've worked with pastors who are struggling in some of these kinds of things as well. These are real things that happen. And schizophrenia is, is a real disease affecting about 1% of the population. And we need to, I believe, integrate them into our community. And so that's psychosis. Um, there's three stages in psychosis. Uh, one is called, when you're in adolescent stage, it's called the pre-morbid stage. There's actually no symptoms other than changes in behavior are starting. Then there's a pre-dome stage where you can hardly notice what's happening. And then acute stages where a person may have hallucinations or be delusional. Another experience I had with psychosis was when I was on staff in Thunder. Bay and in Thunder Bay, uh, we had a we were right next to the university, and we had uh, Lakehead University, and we had a uh, a young man who was just just a promising person, like he was smart, he was intelligent, he got involved in leadership, and about second and the second year of his university, um, my wife Elaine and I we kind of, we went into this elevator and he was in the elevator and we were going up the elevator and he starts telling us, Jer uh, Pastor Jerry, I have to tell you something that nobody knows. I'm with the CIA and I'm, I'm involved in all kinds of uh, espionage things and undercover stuff. And he starts telling us how he's working with the CIA. 
And uh, I immediately knew that the, he was going, he was probably moving into a stage of psychosis, right? We actually, I actually pastored a church where a guy was working, I think, for CSIS, and he actually let nobody know what was going on, ever. Not even his wife knew, <laughs> you know what I mean? So if a person really works for one of these organizations, he, I think he was connected to CSIS. He never, ever told us. We were pretty sure it was. That was a rumor. If, if they actually work for an organization like this, they will never tell you, right? It's so secretive. But uh, that was another example of psychosis. I've, um, I've had people sometimes wonder if there's spiritual stuff connected to psychosis. And I'm, I would like to address that. Um, I would like to say that psychosis is a biochemical problem, uh, a problem with dopamine in the brain and serotonin levels. And when they straighten that out, uh, things the person works well. You know, it sometimes takes a few years to get the meds right, but the more they straighten out the meds, the bio, uh, sorry, the dopamine and serotonin issues, the less it's an issue, right? So I stay away from those kind of discussions because uh, it, most of them are biochemical issues, and so, um, but we have to integrate them into our community, right? And uh, so that's that's the first thing I wanna mention today is the psychosis uh, issue. Are there any questions uh, coming up, uh, Joel, on psychosis? Uh, I, I don't see any in the chat here, but uh, again, if anybody wants to, just uh, Eaglemont Church in the chat, hit the chat on the bottom of the Zoom there. If you do have questions, just choose uh, Eaglemont Church in the two category as the recipient and I'll forward your questions. Yeah. And is it okay if I adapt to a, the situation here a little bit this morning? We're not a lot, we're not a, a, a large group. I did a seminar a couple of weeks ago. I had 130 on Zoom. That was, that was interesting. But um, this, um, if you just want to ask a question, I'm totally okay trying to respond to that if you want, to this first section on psychosis. If not, I can move on. Anybody have a question? Henry, is it Henry? I think you have to unmute, right? Just hit the unmute button. I think you're still muted. I, I'll unmute Henry for him. Sure. Okay. Yeah, sorry, you're on mute. There we are. Now you're good. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I couldn't get you because it was not allowing me on mute over here. Yeah. Um, I have a question on psychosis, and uh, you were talking about um, how uh, most of the part um, psychosis has different stages, and it gets to a point where you can't really tell the symptoms, but you know that you're going through certain things that kind of makes you feel like you're diving head first. What do you do then when you feel like, you know, like you're just trying to stay above water? What do you do then when you don't have like access to those, uh, what do I put it? To those resources, right? Yeah. Like, what do you do? Like, how can you help yourself out? 
the, the, it's really important with someone wrestling with psychosis to try to get the medical attention as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, that breaks down sometimes, right? In our culture. Yeah. yeah. Some people don't that that are in this stage actually don't want to get to a doctor. They're afraid of doctors. They're afraid of people. And so they, they kind of, <clears throat> which kind of perpetuates the problem, right, Henry? Yeah. But the best way for them to be helped is if they can get medical assistance, right? Okay. And that's not, that's easier said than done. That's a complex, yeah. right? Yes, there are, here in Toronto, we have all kinds of organizations like the Salvation Army and all kinds of organizations that have tried to help in this regard. And they, it's a... I, God bless those ministries because that's what they're doing half the time is trying to get them into stages where they can get medical help, right? So yes. it's it's com it's complicated. Got a great question. Thank you so much. Now I want to move right. into another, another section called. Sorry, Jerry, we do have a couple questions in the chat. Okay, sure. Um, first question is uh, from Karen. If someone is diagnosed with drug induced psychosis, would they have developed psychosis if you had not been an addict? Right. So a drug-induced psychosis is a different kind of psychosis. It generally lasts, um, you know, a day or two, maybe 72 hours. And then generally you're out of that psychotic state, right? So a drug-induced psychosis is a, is a completely kind of almost different kind of thing. Uh, but it is definitely a psychotic experience. But... Yeah, with certain drugs like cocaine, for instance, uh, you might be you might um, you might have a maximum of seventy two hours where you're in a psychotic state. All right, and then it'll it'll go away. But if you keep being on drugs all the time, the psychosis can be continuing. Right. Is there being another question? Uh, yeah, another question from Christine. She's wondering: Is there a parallel with borderline personality disorder and psychosis? Uh, not that I'm aware of. No, I don't think so. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Not, none of the li literature I've ever read and material I've come across. I know, Joel, you've studied uh, this as well, some of this. I, I, I don't know if you've ever come across that. No, I can't say that I have anything to add. Yeah, yeah I don't think there is. Uh, I've never read that there is. All right. So can I uh, move on to the next uh, to the next section here? And the next session we're going to talk about this morning are mood disorders. <clears throat> so um, there's two kinds of mood disorders. One uh, are the bipolar disorders, and the other one are the depressive disorders. All right. So uh, mood disorders are there's a fluctuation in mood. Um, uh, so the, um, the fluctuation in mood, so you can have um, better days, you can have worse days. I'm going to start with bipolar disorders because this one is a little different than depressive disorders. Um, so when we talk about depression, we're talking about depressive disorders, all right? Um, so people say, I have depression. Sometimes that word is used too flippantly. Uh, people might have anxiety issues. It may not be depression, uh, but we'll differentiate between the two. <clears throat> but bipolar disorders again, uh, are, are, are significantly different. In bipolar disorders, we have extreme, we can have, um, it depends how severe it is, okay? There's different levels of bipolar disorders, 
but in acute bipolar disorders, you can have extreme highs and extreme lows. And when you're doing, when you're involved in your extreme highs, you can conquer the world, right? And when you're in the extreme lows, in the acute stage, right, you might be in a fetal position for three days in your in, in your home in your bedroom, and you're not showing up for work, and people are wondering what's going on. But in the three days that you are on your um, manic stage, your high stage, you might not sleep. You might be able to accomplish incredible work, uh, get projects done. And uh, so those are bipolar disorders. Those are acute stages. There are different kinds of bipolar disorder dis, uh, disorders. There's some milder ones where it's not quite as extreme. What the medication does for bipolar disorders, it kind of flatlines a person emotionally. All right. So it flatlines a person emotionally, which um, I actually dealt with a real estate agent one time who had a bipolar disorder. And uh he 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 just couldn't handle being on his medication, uh, because um, in his man when he he didn't have that manic drive to do sales it was really interesting because it had kind of flatlined and he didn't have an acute case it was a very it was actually a milder case so he didn't have an acute case and so it, it frustrated him because the meds flatlined him because kind of needed this kind of drive to get sales done. And he was a really good real estate agent. And, uh, but yet it was unhealthy for him not to be on medication, right? So going off meds in, when you're in a bipolar state is, is really dangerous. Um, I know a pastor friend of mine who was bipolar and got off his meds and uh, after being on them for 27 years, and then he took his own life. He died by suicide. Uh, simply because the depressive state hit him so hard. So that it's a very dangerous thing to fool around with medication in the bipolar uh, situation. And then we have what's called depressive disorders, and that's depression, okay? And um, there's different kinds of depressive disorders. Uh, one of them is called reactive, uh, which is uh, reacting to grief, but it's not it's 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 an abnormal reaction to grief. So there, if someone dies, like my dad died, I went through the grief process. You know, I don't know if you've ever studied Kubler Ross. You know, shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and going in out in and out of the stages. That is kind of a normal grief process. There are people though that, um, because of their mental health issues. When they grieve, they grieve at a different level, and that's called reactive grief. And they actually, in some cases, need medication because they're not even grieving as a normal person. So if you ever go to a funeral and someone can lose incredibly emotional control, there is a possibility they're dealing with reactive grief. And uh, so it, it's interesting the difference between normal grief and reactive grief. They're, they're, they're somewhat different. And one of them is more uh, depression-oriented, biochemically-oriented. There's secondary depression, which is um, depression based on medication. Some people become depressed uh, as because it's a side effect of some of their medication. So that's called secondary depression and uh, based on medication. There are other people that um, are in a thing called dysthymia. Dis 
systemic depression, which is kind of a chronic depression or a generalized depression state, right? Where, where people are living their constant life sort of on a low, in a depressed low. There is what we call seasonal affective disorders, right? And uh, based on um, um, climate and weather and not having enough sunlight. And uh, some people say, you know, kind of joke about seasonal affective disorders, but there's, there's a lot of evidence that these are real issues. Um, I think the highest suicide rate in, in Canada, I think, is around Valentine's Day, right? And that's because of the, you know, sad uh, seasonal affective disorder impact that that has had on, on people. There's other kinds of depression, like postpartum depression. Uh, postpartum depression, they have never, ever uh, fully scientifically figured out why that happens. Um, many, many women have, when they give birth, apparently there's a little bit of a depressive time after they give birth. Apparently that's normal. But I know a lady who's been in part, uh, her husband's a pastor. We've ministered to them. She's been in the state of postpartum depression for 27 years and uh, has been in and out of hospital. And uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a very extreme case, but very, very real. And uh, there's other depressive disorders that um, that cannot kind of connect with depression. Um, and, uh, and, and some of the depressive disorders create all kinds of mental health challenges, like obsessive compulsive disorders, eating disorders, sleep disorders. Some of these, these cut, uh, some people cut themselves, right? There's some bad outcomes that comes out of kind of de depressive disorders. There's main, two main tracks. One is a bipolar track and one is a depressive track. So I think I covered that a little bit, just uh, did a brief outline of that. Um, if, are there questions, Joel, coming up on this section on mood disorders? Just looking here, I haven't had any questions yet, but can give a minute, I'll, I'll throw a question out to you, Jerry. Is, yeah. um, so you mentioned, I know with bipolar disorder in particular, often a challenge for um, people with staying on medication, similar to when you were talking about psychosis, yeah. um, actually getting people to go on and stay on their meds is, is often a challenge. Uh, in your experience, do you have any tips for people who have family members or friends who are close to them, um, things that you found helpful to try and encourage and help people stay on their medication, especially during um, when they would hit manic stages? So, um, this has been one of the most, so Joel, thanks for that question. This is one of the hardest challenges, right, for, for people uh, trying to deal with uh, people that need medication, right? It's an extremely hard challenge. And everybody, you know, has a right to do what they want in our country, as long as you don't hurt someone else. And um, so I've, I've, I, I've, I asked this question once, it might have been a, uh, might have been in one of the a course that I took. I can't remember anymore. And I asked that question, and the one you just asked. And basically, the the idea was, in their most calm state, is might be the best time to when they're in a calm state, not in a depressive state or, a, you know, maybe even a hypermanic state. But when they're in when they're most calm, it might be the best time to take that opportunity 
to have a discussion with them about it when they're when they're when they're thinking the clearest you know and people sometimes know when that is especially family members that was about the best thing i i I came up with because you can't force somebody right and unfortunately when they get into their into their bad states they they can become abusive verbally i know one guy when he was bipolar he would punch a hole in the wall when he was in his and in some of his state uh, struggling with some of his bipolar uh, issues and it, it is a very very difficult thing but then i know people who are bipolar some of them are really good friends of mine and uh, uh you know joanne goodwin anybody know joanne goodwin as she preached uh, in edmonton right uh she's a good friend of elaine and i and she's bipolar and she she goes around and talks preaches in churches and even uses she she also uses humor uh, a little bit and but she is she will no, never go off her meds she, she is absolutely determined for the sake of her family for the sake of her marriage she it's not an option so people that are bipolar can actually come to that decision uh i don't know that's trying to answer it as best i can but that's a hard one yeah henry is your hand up I think still up from before, Henry. Or is that a? Um, just while Henry's figuring that out, we do have a couple questions that have come in. Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, just as a reminder, because I know we've had some people who have joined in um, later on here. If you'd like to ask questions, uh, just use the chat function on Zoom. Look to the bottom and hit the chat. And if you want to hit directly to uh, the Eaglemont Church. A person to direct it in the two section. Uh, those will go to meet if you if you have any questions. But we have two that have come in so far. Um, uh, Christine asks if you suffer from depression and are on meds for that and possibly dealing with reactive grief. Do you need to change medications? So that is a really good question for your doctor to to go and and uh, work that through with your medical doctor. Um, and, uh, my understanding is there can be testing done for that kind of stuff. So if, if it's reactive grief, um, work, work with your medical doctor on that. If it is normal grief, right, um, there's all kinds of grief, uh, but I'm not going to get into all of them today. Like there's complicated grief and suspended grief. And we can talk about, we can do a whole seminar on grief, right, Tra- traumatic grief. There was a trauma, but in normal grief, we run through um, kind of a process, right? That God has helped us develop, like he created us to work through that um, process. And that's a normal grief process. Reactive grief then involves your doctor because it's, 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 it's very extreme, right? Reactive grief is if you, if somebody died and, uh, Within a year, you're not yet back to to kind of equilibrium. By the way, you never get over a death, right? We all know that. Um, you know, my dad died, Miriam's mom died. You never get over a death. That's normal. But if you are not able to function, say, after a year, you're not able to go to work, you're not able to take care of your family, you may be struggling with reactive grief. Right? Even they say six months to a year, if you're not able to function, uh, you might be in a state of reactive grief. It 
it's kind of an interesting depression, but it could be biochemical at that stage. Is that helpful? But you you would need to go to your doctor, medical doctor. Okay. Um, next question uh, comes from Karen. Uh, with bipolar with bipolar moods, how often can the high and low fluctuate? Um, every my understanding is every bipolar disorder is different, right? Um, so um, some of them, I think it can be. Uh, it can change depending on the severity of it. Um, it can change like maybe weekly, right? And some of them, it, it might be longer periods of time. There, there's mild um, cases, there's mild uh, kind of cases. There's, um, I, I forget the language right now for mild uh, bipolar disorder. There's actually another word for it. Maybe Joel, it's not in my head right now. Maybe Joel, you know it, I don't know. But there's another word for it. And then there's a kind of a mid-range and then an acute range. All right. Um, we have Henry here, and I'm just going to try and see if I can get Henry's mic unmuted for him. Um, Henry, if you wanted to try and see if you could. Okay. It works now. Yeah. Right. I couldn't get you. Every time I tried to unmute, it told me the host will not let me unmute it. So I was, uh, I was just like, okay, well, whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to probably use myself as an example. Uh, so for someone like high, right? Um, I lost my dad like years ago. And depends, um, there are sometimes when I'm probably like, let's say driving down the highway and stuff, I still get like memories or like I'm playing a song and you know, like even though it's been like, what, 17, 16, 17 years, it still hits me. And then I, because it recently happened and I just kind of felt like, okay, maybe this, this, um, this would be an opportunity for me to understand why. Um, it just so happens that I'm driving down the highway and then, you know, I get hit with this, with all these memories, right? Like just out of the blue, it just be, well, it's been usual, it usually hits me and stuff. And then I get into this tears form and you were talking about where you lose someone and stuff and that. And it's just, is it normal to just kind of like, you know, like, you know, have those moments where, you know, like you just have to grieve over something that's happened a long time ago, because that almost took me off the highway. Like I almost like, I almost went off the rail. Like it was, a, I don't know, but uh, I just, I'm just trying to figure out why depression takes so long to overcome, you know, like. There's normal like, grief. There's normal grief, Henry, and um, you know where we remember, right? And and we will have those flashbacks. It's part of normal grief. Okay. Reactive grief is you can't function, right? You can't go to work. Okay. You can't take care of your family, uh, and that's what that's say after six months, six to months to one year, I think, is what they say. And when when you're not able to do that, right? You there might be yeah. more stuff going on in the brain. Okay. So it's normal. Yeah, yeah. Pro you can always go to your doctor and get tested, right? But yeah. probably, probably that's a normal reaction. Uh, can okay. I move on? Is that okay? Um, just for the sake yeah. of time, I think around uh, five to uh, twelve, we'll, or five to ten, your time. Sorry, uh, we'll just take a five-minute break.
Was that okay? And then come back and uh, try try to finish off. Um, there's also I want to talk a little bit about dying, but uh, about uh, oh here I had them all on here on the screen. Okay. I also want to talk about um, suicidal thinking a little bit. And when I talk about this, if you're not comfortable, feel free to leave for for a few moments. But it, it is it is becoming more rampant. All right. So suicidal thoughts. Um, we are saying more and more. We never used to, but we're saying it more and more is a probably a mental health problem. And I I personally think it is. And um, um, it's more uh, more common now, and uh, it's a major. It's considered to be a major depressive disorder, right? And uh, just a little, just a little bit of stuff here. More men, um, uh, sorry, more women attempt suicide uh, to die by suicide than men, but more men succeed at dying by suicide than women. All right, and uh, I. I uh, there's, there's several reasons for that. Uh, men are more determined um, to, 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 to succeed. Um, women, uh, there's also different methods, often between women and men, uh, in, in dying by suicide. Men, men often don't care what it looks like, and women do. And so all, all these kinds of things have, are studies that have been done uh, by, it, by those who, who've who've kind of worked at this field. There's a program called ASSIST. Has anybody ever taken the ASSIST program? All right, so Jaden, you would kind of have a good handle on, on that. It's a really good program and uh, in, in dealing with suicidal behavior. And I would recommend taking the ASSIST program, but I'm just going to give a brief overview on this subject. Uh, there's probably three types of suicidal behavior. And um, I'm going to go from the from the kind of the the least um, threatening one to the most threatening one. And so the first type of suicidal behavior is called recklessness. All right, and that is uh, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. We don't care anymore. And so people will take on sort of a reckless kind of living, sort of like the Russian roulette thing, and they'll pass. A car and a big truck is coming, and if they get hit, they get hit. If they make it, they make they make it. Sort of, kind of a recklessness uh, living with, you know, not worrying about how things work in their lives, whether how what the outcome is. Uh, also, uh, I would put um, uh, drug addiction into the state of recklessness. I did uh, two funerals at my last church that I pastored uh, because of reckless behavior and parts of couple of young adults who who overdosed on on uh, on 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 drugs and so it ended up costing their lives so that's kind of like a reckless way to live right they're both young they're both in their 20s the real sad part is they're both brothers from the same family and the, and the families in our church and so two brothers died within I guess it would have been about three years of drug overdoses and uh and and that that's what happens like they they know nowadays like um like fent i think they're both fentanyl related and um 
again, working with the police, I've, I've discovered a few things. Uh, in the old days, when I was growing up, if you didn't pay your drug bill, they kind of took care of you, uh, you know, some backyard somehow. But in the new days, what's happening is you go back to the drug dealer and they lace it. And knowing they say, hey, if you can't pay your bill and it's it's a problem, you know, it's been going ongoing, you can't pay your bill. They kind of lace it with stuff and the people die of, a, of an overdose, right? So kind of protects the dealer a little bit. This is stuff I've been told by the police. It's kind of kind of interesting how, how that works. So that's kind of reckless behavior because there's nobody if you're if you're if you're addicted to, to drugs, you don't know what they're putting in it. The second level is speaking about it, which is actually the best way to to deal with uh, suicidal thinking. And uh, when somebody says, you know, I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of dying by suicide, I'm thinking of taking my own life, right? Um, that is actually the best way to. That's the best zone for someone to minister to somebody like that, try to help that person. Uh, I want to say that. Um, uh, because of the Good Samaritan law in Canada, confidentiality is not honored when someone talks about dying by suicide. Uh, you know, so if somebody says, uh, "I'm gonna," this is confidential, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my own life. Uh, you are not honored by confidentiality. As a matter of fact, you're incurred, you could be in trouble if you don't respond to first responders. Could be the other way around. Uh, you have to respond to those things, and you have to phone the police or the uh, first responders. Nine one one is the preferred method, uh, and then get them into a treatment center, and then work with them because, generally speaking, they're only there for a short while. They go through a program, and then that's the place where we can come alongside them and try to try to help them. So those are those are people that talk about that talk about it. Um, those are kind of the probably the best category to deal with this issue. And there's a third category, which is immediate and no warning. There are some people that die by suicide and they don't tell anybody, nobody knows, and it just happens, right? Some signs of dying by suicide, deep times of sadness, uh, hopelessness, feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, sleeplessness, change in personality and appearance, depressed kind of mode, right? Um, Visiting friends and family, making a will, cleaning up a home, purchasing medication or weapons, uh, giving things away, um, statements, right? Uh, I want to just mention a couple things that I find interesting. If somebody has talked about dying by suicide and they're depressed and suddenly they're happy and their disposition changes overnight, that could be a sign that they've chosen to die by suicide. So going from a really sad state to a really happy state, and they're going out and they're taking everyone out and paying bills, uh, that could be a real sign. Another one is a uh, real interesting one is no future. So, you know, we're all waiting to get out of COVID, right? How many of us are waiting for that glorious day when things go to normal, right? And uh, generally speaking, we all have a future, which means, uh, you know, we're going to go to a wedding maybe in six months. We're going to go, you know, we're going to do take a trip, right? Um, another, uh, a person who's dying by suicide and has already picked a date might 
the date they pick might be after they do a bucket list thing, thing, right? Oh, I want to go to Europe first, or I want to do this first. And then you say, well, could you come to our wedding in May? Uh, no, why not? Well, uh, I'm not going to be around, right? And so another person says, uh, can you come and, uh, you know, we're having a barbecue in June? No, not going to be around. Uh, can you come uh, to the to the cottage with me in July? No, not going to be around. The calendar suddenly ends. That is another sign the person may be thinking of dying by suicide. So um, intervention techniques include kind of a direct uh, uh, confrontation, right? Um, if you ever studied psychotherapy, uh, Joel would know that. There's a thing called Rogerian. Uh, counseling, which is basically, you know, how are you feeling? You go, we, this is really good. It's a good money maker for counselors. How are you feeling today? Is it better than last week? I'm, I'm hyperbolizing a little. You probably know I'm not a big Rogerian fan, but anyway, so, you know, you go and is it better than it was last week? Are you improving? You know, there's the other extreme, which is called Gestalt, which is, you know, I'm German. So that kind of fits with how I was raised a little, put the person on the hot seat and tell them, you really do have issues, right? That's kind of the other extreme. Well, we we have to use what's kind of direct uh, stuff here. We can't be Rogerian. We have to say, be very direct and say, do you have a date in mind? What methods will you use? And we need to call 911, right? And probably, many cases, you have to do it without them knowing. Otherwise, they'll run. But uh, this is another area that I think we need to address in, in, in our context. Any questions coming in? I'm just touching on stuff a little bit briefly here, but. We have a couple of questions here, Jerry. Um, mm -hmm. uh, first question is, there are teens and young adults who live uh, reckless lives or risky lives without being suicidal. How would you know one is reckless, suicidal, or one is just immature, et cetera? Okay, so I'm saying um, there might be a maturity issue. I totally agree. But I'm saying that anyone who's, who's uh, getting involved in, say, fentanyl or methadone or any of those kinds of things is moving into kind of a Russian roulette, reckless kind of living, right? And uh, because you never know when the thing goes wrong, right? And so it is a type, in my view, a type of suicidal thinking whether they admit it or not, right? Um, but some of it may be immaturity, right? But I, I classify it in, like, the people that that are, so that's why we, we are trying to get people who have addictions, they need to get into treatment, right? Because reckless living, you're playing with your life. You're buying stuff from people that you don't know what they put in there, right? And, uh, uh after having done two funerals in four years for two brothers. And uh, I, I personally would classify it as a type of suicidal thinking, right? Because you don't know the outcome. That's my personal thought on that. I don't know if it would be backed totally by medical science, but yeah, reckless living is, is, is dangerous. I don't know if that's helpful. But. Um. We've got two more questions that I've got so far here. The next one is when someone re, um, repeatedly says they don't want to be here anymore, how do you know if you should believe them? Um, as it seems like they may just be looking for attention for their current frustrations from over the years. 
Yeah, so if you phone 911, you're calling their bluff, right? And if they actually don't mean it, they'll never ever do that again. They, they won't, you know what I mean? So they're, you're in a win-win situation. If they're serious, you're helping them. If they're not serious, then uh, you're helping them to not use that tactic again because it can become manipulative, right? They may need psychotherapy, work through some of their family of origin issues, stuff, you know, deal with the unfinished business in their lives, right? And um, we can help somebody that way uh, using empathy, of course. But um, uh, the, the, the safe way is to call first responders, no matter, like, if there's any indication that they're going to, they're dying by suicide. I actually had a, a, one of my people in my church posted something on Facebook and something along those lines, you know, I don't want to be here anymore, and was not thinking suicidal. And it was like immediate, like 20 people posting, are you okay? You know, oh, I'm okay. I shouldn't have said it that way, right? So it was uh, it was interesting. So, but I think uh, we're not the ones who can judge people's motives and intents, right? So the way... Um, I, I don't know, Jaden, if that's how you were trained, but the way when somebody starts talking like that, um, you should have the have the response be the first responder. So does that make sense, Jaden? Am I on track? Yeah. Thanks. Um, question from Jocelyn, who's my sister. Shout out to my sis, Joss, who checked in here. Um, but according to the latest statistics, the leading cause of death for 10 to 14 year olds in Canada is suicide. In my line of work, I have seen suicide ideation and attempts increase in the very young children. In your experience, what can you advise for those who work with children or parents to recognize the signs in children, but also in the prevention? Uh, great question. Um, I, I my, my initial thought would be, um, again, listening to what they're saying, right? Because if they're expressing thoughts like, I don't want to be here, I don't want to live, right? I, and if they express some traumatic, some trauma, right, of their home life, because sometimes uh, some of these issues are trauma-related, right? What I mean by trauma is abuse of any kind. We need to hear what they are saying. So, Jaden, you took the course. Do you mind if I put you on the hot seat? Can you add anything to this discussion? It's a great question. Yeah, um, we were just taught that it's better to be on the safe side than not. So any small comment is worth addressing yeah. and addressing head on. Don't skirt around it. Just ask straight up, are you considering suicide? Are you thinking of dying by suicide? Are you thinking of yeah. suiciding? You would rather ask an uncomfortable question and get to the root of the issue than to not address it head on and then have regrets later. That's what we were taught in that. So any small comment is worth addressing. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Maybe I'll take one more and we'll take a five minute break. Uh Next question here is um, just a question. If you could touch on the language change from com commit quote unquote commit to died by um, suicide, etc. Why is it in an important change? It's a very important change. So we've changed the language uh, from commits, he committed suicide 
because uh, it gives the impression of a success, right? A successful story. It's like a positive outcome. You know, we finished the job, right? I don't know if you've ever had that, that. So the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and I don't think it was just Mental Health Commission of Canada, it's probably a, more of a global thinking, is that we are considering it as a, a extreme depressive disorder, moving it more into a mental health issue, which I think it should have been all along. And we are saying the person died by suicide. Okay, sim, so it's it's the outcome was a mental health disorder, right? Is the reason the person died by suicide. Let me, let me try to say it another way. Um, well, I, I think that kind of, like, for instance, if somebody dies because, uh, you know, they didn't take uh, their medication for their pancreas, right, because of diabetes, right? We say that person died because of that, because, you know, there was a health issue or maybe they had a heart attack or something like that, right? We're trying to put it sort of in the same kind of category. This is a mental health problem, and the person died by suicide, right? So it wasn't that somebody succeeded and, you know, tried to do a job and committed suicide. It's a person died by suicide because of their mental health problem. I don't know if that makes sense. But. All right. We want to take away from the uh, we, uh, we want to take away from the positive side of this is a job you can do and everyone can do it and move it more into a mental health category. So we say the person died by suicide, similar to a person died from a heart attack or died from cancer or whatever. All right. Um, I do a lot of work for the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and um, they've talked a lot about addictions. And uh, so I put slides together. Um, one of the things they don't talk about is, is sexual addictions. So I put a slide up now when I do this uh, seminar for myself, like for, for churches and stuff, I, I actually include it as, as an addiction as well, because uh, it is an addiction. And I want to say that when I talk a little bit about addictions in the next few moments, addictions actually uh, come out of... Um, there's no such thing as an addictive gene, right? Some people have said, well, that person has an addictive gene. That's why that person drinks. There's actually no such gene. There's a situation that creates uh, anxiety that's situational where there's, where, where there's a foundational issue. Uh, maybe it's trauma. Trauma is a big one in families or other stuff where there's mood disorders and anxiety disorders that are not resolved. And when the mood disorders and anxieties are not resolved, these are layered things, and that's the foundation, there's greater potential than for addictions. So the next layer would be addictions. And if the addictions are not resolved, there's a greater risk or potential for dying by suicide. So it's basically layered. Everybody understands? So the foundational layer will be a traumatic event, uh, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and I'm going to define that in a few moments what anxiety disorders are. The next layer is greater potential when you go through trauma and you have, or you have mood disorders, anxiety disorders, or psychosis. I, I'm going to throw psychosis in there. Greater potential then to have addiction issues. And then there's a greater potential, the next layer, to die by suicide. All right? So the first thing I want to talk a little, I've mentioned sexual addictions because that is one that 
I think is, is similar to substance abuse issues. It's you're trying to escape reality. But I really want to focus on substance abuse issues. Um, like, um, you know, problem has, problems with the uh, substance issues affect, can affect you socially, personally, can affect your work, your school, right? Um, there's different kinds of substance abuse. Um, I'm going to start with one that, uh, you know, we all can relate to just so we understand that it's actually a substance. So there's nothing wrong with substance, using a substance, because a lot of substance, uh, like if you if you have um, back issues or whatever, you may use some of these in medication, like opioids, right, to help you with your, with your pain medication. But a substance is anything that that kind of can alter your mood. So which one do you think is pretty popular amongst our community? I would say coffee, right? Um, although I understand Marlo no longer drinks coffee or something. I don't know what happened to him. But anyway, uh, I still like coffee, right? And I'm using that one. It's actually considered a substance. But then there's also cannabis, um, sedatives, opioids, hallucinogens. The number one uh, substance uh, problem in Canada, though, is alcoholism, still to this day. It's the number one addiction issue. Uh, it far surpasses all of the other ones. So alcohol is still considered the number one problem when it comes to substance abuse in Canada. All right? So I want to mention a little bit about that. Where I want to spend a little bit of time today is on anxiety disorders. And um, <clears throat> this is one that I think is probably affects us all the most. All right. That's my opinion. Again, has the greatest impact on us. And uh, we may not be dealing with depression all the time or mood disorders or bipolar disorders or have substance abuse issues or think suicidally. But I think anxiety is, is big. And uh, I think um, when we look at the statistics of <clears throat> the one I mentioned by the National Post uh, 2019, going from 67% good mental health to 44% a year later, I, I would think that um, a major part of that is the anxiety issues we are facing in our culture. And um, I'm, I'm going to... Um, uh, I think when I did my talk, right, I used the mental health continuum tool. Is that correct? I believe I did, right, for when I did it in your church. And I'm going <clears> to, <throat> how many of you have downloaded that on your phones? Anybody? So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do something right now. Take your uh, smartphone and go to Google Images, because <clears throat> we're going to talk about this in, in a few moments, and download uh, the mental health continuum model or tool from Google Images. So and keep it on your phone because it kind of tells you where you are with your with your level of anxiety. Okay, and it, I've found it a really really good tool. Um, it was prepared. It was actually developed by the Department of Defense first, and then it, it moved to the first responders. And they started using it. And now it's open to the general public. And uh, so uh, it, it's kind of an, a tool that tells us how we're dealing with our anxiety levels. Okay. 
Everybody got it? When you downloaded it, just give me a thumbs up. Because in the old days, we used to give people cards and say, you know, put this in your wallet. Nowadays, you just download it on your phone. All right? Tell me when you have it. And I would, I would say keep it. Keep it because this thing, this tool is an incredible tool. There's different kinds of anxiety. I've I've loved, I've used I've lo uh, listed three different kinds of anxiety. And by the way, the definitions have changed over the years. So um, I'm using the more modern definitions uh, of anxiety. Um, I think the DSM five book, which is kind of the diagnostic manual for mental disorders may still use an older definition. So this is only relevant if you study counseling or psychotherapy, but the language is changing because of the older version, it was harder to understand it. This simplifies it. And so what we're using, what we I, I use these three, which is the more modern version. And the first one is, the first type of anxiety is called situational anxiety. And situational anxiety is put there it's it's normal so when you go through an anxious time in your life uh you're going through situational anxiety so let me give you let me backtrack let me just say this sorry in the side of your brain there's a little thing about the size of an acorn it's about here it'd be about right here pointing i think this is where it is uh there's a little thing in the side of your brain called the amygdala how many of you have heard of the amygdala it's the size of an acorn, okay? <clears throat> it's put there by God to keep you safe, all right? Um, safe is actually the ac acronym. You can use it. Uh, when the amygdala goes off, there's there can be an increased sadness. There can be increased anxiety. There can be increased fear and excitement. So you get the acronym. So that's actually the one that psychologists use. Increased sadness, increased anxiety increased fear and increased excitement when your amygdala goes off that's what's happening so have you ever tried to cross a street like this and the cars are going like this at, but there's no and there's no crosswalk and you got to get across anybody ever done that right what's going on in your brain when you're doing that anita do you want to tell me what's happening can you unmute mute yourself are you but when you're trying to cross the street and it's going like this yeah, it's uh, it's like you know panic. It's you know like you just you get a, a panic anxiety feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Am yeah. I going to get killed? Yeah, that's actually your amygdala going off. All right, they've they've there've been people who have been in um, car accidents, and their amygdala has been damaged, and then those people can become fearless. It can become dangerous for them, right? because it's not working right. And they may take risks that normally you'd never take. The amygdala is put there by God, right? It's totally normal. It's called situational anxiety. Chronic anxiety is different. Chronic anxiety is you're living in a constant state of anxiousness, all right? So now you're, you're, you're in an unhealthy situation, right? Your, uh, your amygdala never shuts off. Um, and uh, or rarely shuts off. You're you're living in constant anxiety. Acute anxiety um, is even more severe. You might have panic attacks, you know, in the middle of the day, right? 
over, over an issue. And so acute anxiety can be even more severe. Some of the, some causes, oh, here, some causes for situational anxiety, um, simple tasks, exams, and health diagnosis. The, the, a low-level cause for situational anxiety is a simple task. So I want to watch the Oilers tonight, and Elaine, my wife, who's Miriam's sister, tells me to clean the garage out. That will create a situational anxiety for me. Okay, and uh, so it's it's a, it's not anything I have to really worry about in the long run, but it's going to create pressure. An exam is sort of a mid-level situational anxiety. You're in university, and you need to write a final exam. A health diagnosis is a is a high-level situational anxiety issue, right? Uh, where you go and uh, you know. Uh, you're going for a diagnostic test and you find out that you have a you need surgery for your heart or something and that's kind of like a, a high level situational anxiety so there's different causes for situational anxiety some of the causes for uh I, i'm not going to get into this too much but some possible causes for chronic anxiety some of it uh, I call this multi-generational transmission. It's not my words. Um, this guy named uh, Murray Bowen, if you've ever studied Murray Bowen. And uh, Murray Bowen said that uh, we can transfer, we can pass stuff down in our family of origin. So if you have a, a parent who's always been anxious, they can actually transfer that down to the church, uh, to the church, to the child, sorry, to the child. They can transfer that that anxiousness down to the child. So that's another possible cause for uh, chronic uh, anxiety. Psychosocial, things going on in the home that are that are not healthy, right? So those are, there's different reasons why uh, chronic anxiety happens, but these are a couple possibilities. Number one, uh, it's transferred by the, by the parent to the child. And number two, what's going on in the home. And there might be like trauma. Trauma will is a bad is very very difficult to cause somebody to live in a state of chronic anxiety. I've heard a lot of those kinds of stories uh, where the father was an alcoholic. Many of those stories, and he comes home and the kids are living in a constant state of anxiety because when he comes home, he becomes abusive and they're afraid. Right. So um, those are some possible causes. There's all kinds of other possible causes probably have a whole seminar on that as well probably come up with 10 causes but these are a couple that i've chosen and the acute anxiety causes and what are some of the causes of acute anxiety um this is when we have uh, gone from become more and more unhealthy right so we've lived in chronic a state of chronic anxiety um, even sometimes situational anxiety will create that if if somebody gets really, really stressed, they're not able to cope. Remember the the World Health Organization definition of mental health, right? Leaving your, sorry, reaching your potential. There's always stuff and they, they, they're so focused on their anxiety, they can actually have panic attacks. Acute anxiety causes can be um, um, panic attacks, uh, taking things, uh, overthinking things, right? There's some people that can actually go into this kind of a state. And living in a state of chronic anxiety can cause acute anxiety as well, right? 
And then there's acute stress disorders. So if you've ever had a traumatic experience, so this is more trauma-based, right? Um, the acute stress disorder is if you've, you've had trauma, usually uh, you can have uh, the, the trauma creates these three things, panic attacks, uh, flashbacks, and triggers. Those are the three components of, of trauma. Uh, or um, that, sorry, acute stress disorder. If you've gone through traumatic experience, the way acute stress disorder manifests itself, panic attacks, flashbacks, and triggers. Trigger is something like that looks similar to an experience you had. So when, when military would come home to Canada and a car would backfire and the guy would jump into the bush while he's going for a walk with his wife, right? Um, he's having a trigger. That, and in his brain, he's saying you're being shot at. That's called acute. That that's the the outcome of that is acute stress disorders. You have too many acute stress disorder uh, will generally resolve itself within a month. All right. So if you've gone through a trauma, the acute stress disorder will resolve itself within a month. What happens if you have multiple acute stress disorder incidents? What do you think happens? Anybody want to take a a shot at answering that. You have multiple acute stress disorder incidents. What can happen? What do you think can happen? Well, anybody? Well, if you have too many of these, and the police forces face this, and the and the first responders force face this, they have uh, they have they use the image often of a bucket that overflows. Have you heard that? So if you have too many of these incidents, you go into post-traumatic stress disorder. All right? So too many incidents of, of um, acute stress disorder, you go into full-fledged PTSD, um, which um, now does not last for a month, okay? And, and your panic attacks become severe, severe panic attacks. Your amygdala never shuts off. Uh, so you have panic attacks, you have triggers and flashbacks. So I worked with a police officer in, in one of our churches, became very, very good friends of, of his. And he had too many acute stress disorder incidents and his bucket overflowed. And uh, I was his pastor. So he would have... 20 seizures a day where he'd fall on the floor. That's how the panic attacks manifested themselves. Tw an average of 20 times a day. He had to stay in, in the living room so he'd fall on the carpet. Um, they got, he got into a really good institution where he actually had to go for like two weeks working with psychologists to try to uh, process these panic attacks, right? And to process the events. The way they deal with PTSD, uh, it's sort of like your clock, your, you have a, you know, you go into your house and you got to clean out your closets. Every closet has to be cleaned out. You have to actually go into every room in your brain and clean out this incident, clean out that incident, clean out that incident, or maybe in, use a computer analogy, delete these files, delete those files, delete those files. You have to go through every one of them. And then 
in 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 most cases, in the majority of cases, people with PTSD can be helped. But he had moved from acute stress disorder into full-fledged PTSD. So uh, you have too many acute stress disorder incidents, and you run a high risk of post-traumatic stress disorder. I've worked with a number of police officers. Um, I have good friends that have PTSD, police officers. Um, I forget. I think the stat was, I'm pretty sure it's correct. It's an etched in my brain, quoted in my brain. I think 40% of first responders will get PTSD. It's a huge number, right? And and I think that the, the number is now dropping because of some of the programs they've developed. I'm going to share one of them with you. Uh, that's the mental health continuum model. This whole program was developed <laughs> so PTSD would drop, right? But uh, they they if they internalize it and they don't debrief with anyone, uh, the uh, if they inter- uh, and don't uh, for years. Um, I, I, almost every police officer that I've worked with deals with this, says this to me. And I don't know, Marlo, I think you're the chaplain, right? For the RCMP there in Beaumont or something like that. And have you heard the same story? A lot of guys internalized it, never dealt with it, right? And because you weren't supposed to, right? Uh, you know, you were supposed to be tough, right? And uh, some of the older police still think that way, uh, you know. You got to just ride it out, and the problem is a lot of them will collapse into post-traumatic stress disorder. Have you had some of those experiences, Marlo, with working with? Police? Can you comment? Well, I think you're on mute. Yeah, definitely. Um, sat in a workshop by Dr. Gilmartin uh, a few years ago, and telling stories of, uh, you know, what might be seen on the media as a snippet and the story behind it inevitably is uh, uh, in the vast majority of cases exactly that kind of thing and the I know the RCMP is working uh, increasingly on uh, addressing that and uh, making the pathway to finding help and not be afraid to lose your that you'll lose your job so that they can deal with it and and get them healthy uh, as part of that uh, police uh, service again. So, yeah, for sure. Thank you. So, um, uh, so um, moving from this then, they, because of acute stress disorder and because of PTSD issues, the partner um, started about, I think, might have been the 1980s, something like that. They started to develop this research, and they used psychiatrists, psychologists to develop this tool, right? And this tool was developed <clears throat> to help reduce the amount of post-traumatic stress disorder. But this is actually an anxiety model, so situational anxiety, chronic acute anxiety, and then it goes downward stress disorder and PTSD, right? They're all kind of interrelated because they're all based on stress and anxiety. So this model was, as I mentioned, developed developed by the Department of Defense and uh, then went to the first responders and now is for the general public. And so we may not have PTSD like the police do, the kid get, sorry, but we 
we do believe that we have run into situations in the workplace where some of the people may be showing signs of acute stress disorder or even PTSD. We're finding that this goes beyond, beyond first responders. But I want to say another thing. If you went through a trauma in your life, right, the, like, say, like, um, some kind of child abuse, for instance, right, that kind of traumatic event, uh, you also run the risk of PTSD, or some even go into stages of PTSD, or acute stress disorder and PTSD. So this model was, was as they worked through this model, they said, <clears throat> we need to use this model for the general public, right? So in the green zone, <clears throat> that is kind of the healthy zone, right? One of the things that's missing on this model, and how many of you downloaded yours uh, on your phone? Some of you might have it. Some of them have arrows going both ways. Anyone got the arrows going both ways? On Yeah, you have that, Anita? So in other words, <clears throat> you can move around to the right or to the left, right? That's kind of missing on this mob, on this, on this picture. In the green zone, um, which is the healthy zone, there's optional functioning. There's adaptive growth. You're in a state of wellness. You're at, you're at your best, right? Remember, World Health Organization, uh, reaching your potential. That's part of the definition of mental health. You're at your best, well-trained, in control, physically, mentally, spiritually fit, mission-focused, motivated, calm and steady, having fun. I like having fun. Good sense of humor is a sign of mental health, right? And uh, so those are the kinds of things that happen in the green zone. The reacting zone is situational anxiety, all right? That is situational anxiety. Um, that's when an incident happens that we have to resolve. That is very is quite stressful. I would put COVID into that right now, that we are in the reacting zone with COVID in Canada. I, uh, it's my opinion. Um, I haven't proved this through data, but, you know, Sometimes I think my opinion might, might be okay. And this is one of the cases my wife doesn't always think it is, but maybe this is where it fits in. Um, I, I actually think that mental health of Canadians dropping from 67% to 44% has something to do with the reacting zone because of COVID, because we can't see our families, you know, our churches are struggling. In our context, uh, you know, it goes all down the down the line, right? And the reacting zone <clears throat> is we have a situational anxiety. It's affecting the amygdala, right? But as you see, it's a cause can be any stressor, right? We can feel irritable, anxious, or down. Have we felt that during COVID? Has anybody felt that? Loss of motivation. Have we felt that? Loss of focus. Have we felt that? Um, not having fun. Have we felt that? So we're, this is a situational anxiety stage. This is the most important stage to deal with when it comes to anxiety. Because we can go either to the right or we can go to the left of this in this model. It is absolutely the most important stage. We cannot um, keep stress out of our life. 
Is it possible to live a stress, 100% stress-free life? Is it possible? Well, maybe if I bought an island in the Bahamas by myself, without my wife and without my family, I could have some kind of, but then I'd be stressing about them because I'm not with them, right? Like, let me be really honest here today. You cannot live a stress-free life. So when it, you see somebody talk about a stress-free life and advertise that, it's baloney. It's bunk. You will not live a stress-free life. How many of you say, thumbs up, I agree with that, right? It's impossible, right? We will be faced with stressors, right? That's called, that's when the amygdala goes off. That's the reacting zone. If we don't deal with, well with that, we can go into the injured zone. And I think some people who have chronic anxiety issues may be in the injured zone. More severe, persistent distress, impairment, leaves a scar, higher risk, right? Uh, moral injury, right? Um, you know, people asking you to do something that isn't based on integrity, those kinds of things, right? Getting into that, that can cause an injured uh, issue if you can't deal with it. Loss of control, panic, rage, depression, no longer feeling like normal self, excessive guilt, shame, or blame. And if you don't do well with the injured zone, you can run into the ill zone, where now it's you need a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, PTSD, depression, anxiety, um, <clears throat> symptoms persist, worsen. Uh, at that point, you need a lot of help. Guess what uh, the people who put this together discovered? I actually do a whole seminar called The Working Mind, a seven-hour seminar I do for the Mental Health Commission of Canada. I'm doing, next, I'm doing one next week, two days, seven hours. do a ton of these for churches because it's, 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 it's so helpful to our situation where we are, right? They discovered in the reacting zone, and this is probably not a brain surgeon probably could figure you don't have to be a I'm trying to say you don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure this out but it's interesting what the discovery was in the reacting zone when you go through a trauma you need to debrief right um they call it in, the, in with the police department that they call it an ad hoc incident review right so if there's been a shooting or a fire if you're a fireman you have to immediately take the captain has to take his crew and do a quick debrief for about five minutes, 10 minutes on the incident. And then the next week, because the amygdala processes, sends, uh, the amygdala reacts, sorry, I didn't say that right. The amygdala reacts to the, to the trauma and sends the information to the frontal lobe of the brain up here to process what happened. So uh, they've figured this all out. So you have a quick incident review at the time of the trauma, and then within about three or four days, um, the amygdala has sent the information to the processing part of the brain, so we have a better handle on what's happening. They have an actual debrief on the incident. That's how they're doing it. Uh, that's how they're doing it uh, now. Okay, and so it's kind of interesting. It's like a three or four day interlude from the incident to the actual full debrief. They discovered in the reacting zone that we actually need people to talk to, to process what happened. Well, that's not a huge thing for a Christian, if we come from a Christian faith background. 
I say in the reacting zone, number one, I talk to God, cast all your cares upon him. Number two, I need to talk to somebody to make sure that I don't get into cognitive distortions, that I don't overthink the situation. I have a problem. This is confession time that I overthink things when I face a stress. So let's say I have a somebody in the church. I'll use a church example, maybe somebody in leadership, and they come and they say something really, you know, really strong to me. Um, I'm using my personal example here. You know, this is not working. It's falling apart. And, you know, and I have the tendency then if I internalize it to go and think I've really messed this up, you know. But I'll go to my wife and she says, no, no. And, oh, and I also have the tendency to think the guy's against me or the lady's against me and this person's against me and they're mad at me, especially if they have a harsh tone of voice. And and I'll, I'll go to my wife and she'll help me sit and she'll say, no, 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 no. They're just addressing an issue. Okay, I have the tendency to get into cognitive distortions when I'm on my own. I need somebody to help me process. So I get back into the green zone. My wife talks to me. Oh, yeah, I never even thought of that angle, especially Elaine. She's really good at, oh, I never even thought of that. Okay, boom, I'm in the green zone, right? But if I was, if it was left up to me personally, I might, and you have enough of those incidents, you can move into the injured zone because you overthink things. Anybody else overthink things? Or is it just me, right? The tendency to overthink the situation. And so they've discovered that by using community, uh, we can get each other into the green zone because we have a tendency, uh, some of us do, especially if that's how we're wired, to overthink the situation. Any questions coming up, Joel, before I do my final little talk on self-care today? Oh, yeah, we do have some just going back here. Again, for those who have joined later, if you have questions, if you want to put them in the chat, you can just direct them to uh, the Eaglemont Church in the two category. Um, but just going back to the discussion on um, anxiety, a uh, question here is, are you saying that multi-generational anxiety is transmitted by behavior of the parent or by a um, physical genetic factor? Um, probably... I've had that question asked before. Although we are product of our genetics, right? And there's probably, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some genetic input there as well. Probably more it's, it's by the parent that hasn't dealt with their own traumatic events in their own life and hasn't processed it properly. or And they, they then transfer it to the child. So in this case, I, I I would probably lean more to the to the to the Bowen talked about that. So if you know Murray Bowen, he talked about transfer. He talked more about transference, less about genetics, more about transference. And um, in this case, it's probably more a transference by the parent. That can be stopped through counseling, and you can actually live a brand new life by going through psychotherapy, Christian counseling. Stuff like that. You can end that. You can end that cycle. Okay. Anybody else? Just uh, looking through the chat here. Uh, if there's other questions, if you guys want to forward, but I'll throw this one just as a follow-up. Um, mm -hmm. 
uh, Jerry, have you had experience with in research and looking up as far as like with the effects of epigenetics, if we're going from a Christian standpoint, again, as the Bible talks about a curse that can be passed from second to third generation, um, uh, have you had much in your practice and experience in, in um, researching that at all with, again, that physiological factor of transfer from parent to child and grandchild, or is that not really something that you've really focused on? Well, actually, it is a big discussion item, right? Uh, uh, there is a, definitely a genetic transference that can happen, right? And so for Christians uh, to ignore that, um, probably, probably not the best, because that can happen, absolutely. But I want to say, on the other hand, uh, I, use, I, I believe in integration. What I mean by that is scripture and transformation. And I believe in God's transforming power as well, right? So if anyone is in Christ, they are new creations, right? So here's, here's how I deal with theology. So just <laughs> such a hard topic or doctrine. I try to manage all of my theological polarities well. Matter of fact, I teach at the Bible college. I said, I want you to learn one thing. And all the students will come back to me five years later. I still remember that. I haven't forgotten. This I remember. You know, don't, don't worry about remembering anything else I taught you. I said, just remember this one thing. Manage all of your theological polarities well. So we cannot say there's no genetic transfer, because there is, right? But at the same time, the other polarity is that we are transformed by God. So we're transformed by God. We may have to deal with some of the stuff, right, that has been transferred multi-generationally, genetically, right? So I, I would not say absolutely no to that, right? But I would also say that God, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. So we kind of need to work with those polarities, I think. Because um, mental, uh, psych psychological science has proven there is a genetic component, right? I, I think it has. And you can't ignore that. And as Christians, we need to pursue, Solomon says we need to pursue wisdom and knowledge about once every eight verses in Proverbs. So uh, I think I think it's important that we are the best thinkers around, right? That becomes a testament. Uh, I have one question here. The mental health continuum is a great resource to help monitor one's physical, mental, and emotional health. Wondering if there has been any discussion of including one's spiritual health in the continuum. Yeah, I, I actually like it as an integration model because I like that question <clears throat> because the reacting zone is about me loving God, and it's about the church, right? We can't actually live the Christian life without our community, right? If you look at the Bible, the New Testament, and the Old, I mean, both Testaments, it's God and community, right? So for me, this makes a ton of sense that in the reacting zone, that's where I get God involved, where the amygdala is being used, which is a creation of God, right? Um, that's the time for me to cry out, well, even before, I try to spend time with God every day, right? But in the reacting zone, cry out to God, right? Cast all my cares upon him. 
by the way, that verse be anxious for nothing. I researched it. In the Greek, it is chronic anxiety. It's a person living in perpetual anxiety, not situational anxiety, not, you know, the different stressors we go through. And that's Psalm 94, 19, beautiful verse. Um, in all probability, Absalom is trying to betray David. He doesn't know if he's going to get killed. He doesn't know the outcome. And he says, in my anxiousness, you comfort me, right? Another example of the amygdala, right? Reacting. So I, I absolutely, reacting zone, you, you can absolutely use this in a Christian context because it, the reacting zone is where we turn to God. So if I made a Christian version of this, I would put in the reacting zone, cast all our cares upon him for he cares for you, right? That's kind of, I would throw in scripture. And then I'd talk about my community, right? About us caring for one another, praying for one another, right? You could put that all into the reacting zone and that's how we get into the green zone. So definitely it fits from a Christian point of view, I think. Any other questions? Because I got one more little thing I want to talk about, and that's self-care. Because I think it fits into mental health, right? Self-care. <laughs> and then I think I'm done. After, should I go on to the final one? I'm going to go into um, I'm going to go into the, uh, this this uh, little self-care model today. I'm going to finish with this. And there's a Christian lady, her name is Dr. Lou, and she uh, this was her research that she did. and I like it because it was done from an integrated Christian perspective and says, <clears throat> These are, these are the components of the Christian life, all right? The Christian life of self-care. And there's like eight quadrants. And what I, what I have to tell you my little story, which is when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in the, I was a kid in the 60s, and I kind of grew up around the 70s. I'm pretty old already. I'm 62, but anyway, that's a joke, but. Um, but there was no real emphasis on self-care, right? You just work hard, you know, um, it's better to, what did they say? It's better to rust, uh, they had a saying, rust out than, they were so focused on getting the job done. I can't think of the cliche right now. That yeah, it's better. It's better. It's better to burn out than to rust out. Thank you, Marlo. It's better to burn out than to rust out, right? And, and that was sort of the emphasis, right? Thanks. I have a great brother-in-law. Appreciate him. And uh, it's better it's better to burn out than to rust out. And and here's the thing, but that doesn't take care of our mental health, right? And and I do what's called the transformational model with my students, and I say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And there's another passage where where it's, you know, Paul was talking about the, the marriage uh, between a husband and a wife. and talks about the husband loving his own body. You know, he uses that analogy. And, and we haven't taken care of our own mental health. And by not taking care of our mental health, it hinders me from doing ministry. I can't be effective in my home. 
I can't be effective with my family. I can't be effective with my community. I believe when God says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we're supposed to take care of our bodies, he's not just talking about smoke, not smoking, right? That's what I grew up with. I think he's taught, you know, it didn't matter how much you ate as long as you didn't smoke, right? That was the big thing, right? But I think it actually, it, it encompasses a lot more. So Dr. Lou said the first quadrant is the devotional, right? My relationship with God has to be intact for my mental health to happen. It's all about mental health. The second quadrant is the familial or my family. My family needs to be taken care of. The next quadrant is uh, my educational. What we mean by educational is we need to know, we need to be competent in, in, in the things that we are doing, especially in terms of ministry. So it's actually designed for pastors, but I use it for across the board. So when you're doing ministry, we need to have some competency. We need to go for training. This is what's happening today. The next quadrant for my mental health, my, actually, this is more a schizero type thinking. I don't know if you know schizero, but healthy, mental, emotionally, spiritually healthy people, right? They all kind of work together. Spirituality, mental health, emotional health, they all work together when we, when we do it God's way. So if I have good educational or competency, I can do good ministry. But then my mental, spiritual, and emotional health is also dependent on my integrity, being ethical. If I, if I have no integrity, it's going to affect my mental health. If, I, if I'm living a double life, it affects my mental health. We've seen uh, several large leaders kind of come down in the last two years, right? And if you're if you're if you don't have the ethical integrity piece in there, it'll it'll affect your own personal mental health. You've got to you've got to do it God's way. And then there's the emotional side, right? Where uh, we got to practice the fruit of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. And then Dr. Lou says we need to take care of our bodies. I, I have to get back at it. I I did good for a few years and I've let it go again. And, I got to get back, you know, trying to get in shape again. And it's always an issue, but it actually affects our mental health. And the final one, Dr. Lou uh, says, is the aesthetic, right? Got to take care of our appearance, right? That's part of good mental health. And uh, because she's a Christian, uh, spiritual, emotional, mental health. So I thought I would put this self-care wheel on here just as a, as a final uh discussion point about how we can take care of ourselves and pursue good mental health. Any questions about this wheel? Coming up? In the chat room, anything? No? Okay, I'm done. I hope it was helpful for me to, to do this for you today. You. Thanks so much, Jerry. I do want to open it up if there's, uh, just give a minute or two here, if there's any more questions that um, you guys do have that you'd want to throw in. I want to go back to one question that um, was asked earlier, and it was kind of a duplicate, but had a slightly different um, trajectory to it. So since we have time here, I'll, I'll throw mm -hmm. this one out as, as well. Um, when it came to the transferring, again, this was, I think, going back to the generational uh, question. 
yeah. the transferring of anxiety. And it was, the question was, so you can transfer anxiety, but alcohol, you don't transfer, or sorry, alcoholism, you don't transfer. Um, Actually, you can transfer anything. So how many of you have ever, anybody here ever studied Murray Bowen? Um, no. Joel, uh, Joel has because of, you've got a counseling degree. Uh, basically, you can transfer anything. If an alcoholic father, you know, the kids are watching what, what the father or mother, right, are watching what the parent is doing, and, and they begin to do the same thing, right? So you can have generational alcoholism, right? So absolutely, I think it can be transferred. Now, I I've, I've, have incredible, you probably heard those stories, testimonies of God's intervention where that stops. Somebody becomes a Christian and they do everything in their power to break that cycle. Then a, a new kind of family begins in Christ and that transfer stops, right? Because the children aren't safe. Can I? Yeah. So just so I'm understanding you right, when you say transfer, you're saying that by um, actually ob observing or. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not saying there's anything in the genes ever that can uh, transfer. No, I'm, I'm saying observation. Murray Bowen was about observation. Um, alcohol, there's no such thing as an addictive gene. Okay, that's kind of a myth that was propagated years ago. And they did research. There is no such thing as an addictive gene, right? But personality genetics uh, can be... I think can be transferred down from one person to the other, to the other, right? So tendencies, personalities, uh, those kinds of things are both, you've heard of nurture and nature, right? So there's a genetic component and a nurture component. When we're talking about transference here, multi-generational transference, we're talking about observation. That's how, that's what Bowen meant. Am I correct? Joel, Joel you, you studied Bowen, I think, right? Yeah, and his method there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's some follow up questions to this um, for you, Jerry. Um, okay. So, again, Karen, who asked the question, question originally, um, just said so transference is different than hereditary. Um, yes. Is, yes. Is, is anxiety hereditary? And she follows us up. Um, I have an adopted daughter who struggles with it, uh, who struggles with severe anxiety, and there is a history of anxiety disorder in her family. And so, again, going back to that, is anxiety hereditary? Question. There's probably I, I I would say there's a nurture nature works works all the time, right? So it's probably a genetic component. I would think. Right. We're not negating the genetic component, right? And so, and Karen just adds, she was never with her family. Right. So the yeah. aspect there. Okay. Yeah. We, we actually see that a lot in, in adoptions, that kind of thing, right? Where you, you can actually see the genetic uh, component, right? Going back to the family of origin. That's not uncommon. Yeah. So speaking of Bowen, I, I mean, just to make sure that it's clear, I mean, I think you're saying by Bowen's model, yeah. We were talking about transference, but again, as, as we spoke about earlier today, um, you're also not negating that there is also a genetic component. 
right. talk about that as well. Yeah. yeah. For clarification, right. Um, just, a, just a question regarding uh, this model that you have up on the screen right now, Jerry. So what about someone who looks at that and, and goes, well, familiarly, I, I don't have the option. My, my family is a bit of a mess and I don't have control over that. Um, am I, is, is the option to have mental wholeness and wellness? Is that beyond me? Because that's a quadrant that I really can't make sure is healthy. Yeah, you know, uh, that can happen, right? Uh, great question. Uh, we can, I, I, one of my students yesterday, uh, I was teaching a master's on Zoom. Uh, master's is like Vanguard, our Pentecostal Bible College in Peterborough. He's the only Christian in his family, the only one. And he has been hammered by his family, that he's nuts, that he's this, that he's that. He talks about it in the class, almost weekly. And uh, um, absolutely, those are... That's where you're being, I guess you could use the word persecuted. For You know, Jesus talked about, you know, in some cases, you're, you're going to have to, if I, if I remember correctly in the Gospels, you're going to have to even disconnect yourself from your family for the sake of the Gospel, right? And that would probably fit in more in a, that, that's part of this, the price we pay for our faith, right? Sometimes. But in an optimal case, uh, our family is very important. And in an optimal case, uh, we need to, I believe, as Christians, first minister to our kids, right? And now um, ministering to our grandkids. Like that's now where our prayer, my prayers are now going to my grandkids, right? Well, I want them to know God, right? And, uh, but absolutely, that that's a possibility for sure. Just looking here, I, I don't see, a, just give another couple seconds, but I don't see any other questions in the queue um, to be able to go with here. But I'll give five more awkward seconds where we're all kind of staring and I'm just watching just to see if anything starts typing in here. Um, but yeah, if I if I can, uh, on, on behalf of all of us who've been listening, Jerry, I want to thank you just for, uh, for taking the time to deposit and to share from your wealth of knowledge today and and um, and give so uh, graciously with your time and uh, and these great resources. Um, I for for just for note's sake, um, I, I have been recording, uh, which we will make this available if you would like to have this to go back and resource yourself a little bit on some of the discussion that we've had through uh, through the morning here. Um, uh, you will notice that there's about 14 minutes missing. That solely falls on me because I forgot to hit record till partway through. So, uh, but uh, just as a, if I can, uh, just pastorally, just want to encourage you as, as we've going through, as we go back to the mental health continuum models, Jerry's was talking about in that reacting zone, where there are so many of us who are found in that with nervousness, irritability, sadness, feeling overwhelmed, forgetfulness, low energy, all these, all these things that are under that category, where there's probably many of us who fall under there and many in our lives who are falling in during this difficult season. Can I encourage you, number one, for yourself to take that, that we cast all our cares on him, but that again, as a church, we are also called to bear one another's burdens so that we prepare ourselves um, 
A, to share with someone else. Talk to someone today, if that's you. Just find someone to begin to talk with. And the second thing is be, be a person that someone else can talk to as well. Um, because ultimately there are people out there that need to talk and let's not be a person of judgment. Uh, let's make sure that we are those who come with an attitude of how can I bear with this person? How can I get in there? Not just say, what are you doing down there? But meet someone where they're at to, to provide care for that. And, uh, Jerry, I'm going to hand it over to you before we uh, close, because you may have a, a word or two still that you want to share here. Yeah. Can you see the books that I have up here? So these are um, integrated Christian. These are Christian books dealing. These are all Christians that deal with uh, mental health, subject of mental health. So these books are uh, are here listed. Um, and I've got also the address of uh, this particular person. Hang on. Um, okay. These books can be ordered here, and I can actually, uh, I can actually send this to to your church from Parasource. This guy's actually in my church, Ken McDonald. He's one of the, uh, the one of the people that's involved in leadership in Parasource, where you can get these books. So these are the books I was going to promote. Take care of yourself by uh, Martinus, Wayne Cadero, Leading on Empty. Uh, I heard his testimony. Anybody ever hear his testimony uh, on burning out, right? Serotonin depletion. Pastor in, in Hawaii. 101 ways to be less stressed, all right? Um, and Mental Health and the Church by Stephen Grekovich. He's a medical doctor. Uh, the Pastoral Handbook of Mental Illness, and the final one is by Stanford. Oh, this book is by Bloom. This one's by Stanford, Grace for the Afflicted. So if you're, if you're interested, I can actually uh, send some of these resource I, thoughts to, to your church as well. Wonderful. Uh -huh. And it's been an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry. And uh, let's uh, let me just uh, close. I'll, I'll close our time with a word of prayer, and um, you can go along with your days, everyone. I'm sure you have things that you need to get to as well. So, God, thank you for this time, uh, a time of learning, um, time of hopefully insight, and um, just from the discussions that we've had, we thank you for Jerry and his expertise. We pray that you continue to bless him in his ministry and uh, help us in our own personal lives. Um, God, help us in the opportunities we have to be able to assist and support those around us and uh, care for people in a loving way, just as you do for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.